I'm Harlan Krumholtz, and welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. Today we have Sue Sheridan, a good friend of mine and a leader in patient safety. Sue became involved in patient safety efforts after suffering two tragedies in her family due to medical errors. Originally a finance banker for international trade, Sue co-founded and led the Parents of Infants and Children with Cornicturus, and has also led Consumers Advancing Patient Safety the Patients for Patient Safety Program at the World Health Organization, the Patient Engagement Team for the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, PCORI, and that's really where I met Sue. And she's also served as a patient and family engagement advisor at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS. She currently serves as the Director of Patient Engagement for the Society to Improve Diagnosis and Medicine. Sue's been recognized as a patient leader many times over, including Modern Healthcare's Top 25 Women in Healthcare, and 100, one of the 100 most powerful people in healthcare. Is that right, Sue? <laughs> so they say. <laughs> well, I, I'll agree with that. But let me just start at the beginning because I think it's useful for people listening to get to know you a little bit. And, and maybe sure. even before all of this happened, even before the first medical error, can you just tell us, like, I mean, where'd you grow up? Uh, who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in Michigan. Um, little town in Southern Michigan and, um, grew up, um, as you know, Harlan, a synchronized swimmer and, yeah, an athlete. I know that. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I had, um, you know, a love of travel when I was really young. So I ended up, uh, studying overseas, um, in Mexico as an exchange student. I got a scholarship to go to Madrid and I did one of my masters in Barcelona. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, um, in Ecuador, um, I loved international, so my profession was international trade finance. And then Pat, my late husband, and I decided to, um, on a whim, we both quit our jobs and moved to Idaho, where his family <laughs> was. And we, wow. yeah, it was a, a complete change in life. We, um, you know, the corporate life we enjoyed, but it wasn't our long-term dream. So we uh, moved to the mountains in Idaho. And uh, I went from vice president of international banking to um, a swim instructor for $7 an hour <laughs> up in the mountains. And, um, and we were really trying to, you know, start a family. Um, I, I actually had trouble getting pregnant and we went through fertility um, interventions and even a surgery. And, um, and then we got pregnant with Cal. And that was, you know, that was the beginning of the change of our lives. Yeah. Do you want to, so just, Tell me a little bit about then what happened. Yeah, yeah. so we were um, actually living in the mountains, a town of 3,000 people. They did have a little hospital there with a few beds, but we decided to come down to the big city of Boise, Idaho. Uh, we went through birthing classes, and, we, um, and I had the baby here in Boise, Idaho, at a large regional hospital with a NICU and you know, all the specialists, thinking it was going to be safer. <clears throat> and um, I had a normal pregnancy and delivery, and... Um, but Cal started to get um, yellow, you know, soon after birth, which I was told was very normal. And um, I wasn't, nobody expressed any kind of concern. And then um, we were discharged early because they actually needed my bed. 
Um, and so we're discharged at 33 hours. Um, Cal was head to toe yellow. Um, mm. I was told not to worry. They didn't say anything about jaundice being a concern or worrisome. Um, they gave me a little handout that actually said that jaundice was normal, not to worry. And, but Cal started to get like on the third day, he started to get really, um, tired. He, he had been an aggressive breastfeeder and his, his sex became really weak and he would kind of fall off my breast and, and then be hard to wake up. So I actually called the hospital and reported this. And, um, they, the first question they asked me, Harlan was, are you a first time mom? And I said, I was, and they said, mom, um, this is not uncommon for first time moms to be anxious like this. It's com- oh, wow. it's normal for babies to be sleepy. Yeah. They said, if you're, you know, unwrap him, tickle his feet. Um, Pat and I tried doing that. It didn't change his behavior. So we actually, um, called the pediatrician and he said, and he also said, you know, I'm more, more worried about you, mom, than I am your baby. Cause John, this is normal, but we took him to the doctor and the doctor, um, I showed him how Cal would breastfeed and fall off my breast and how he was more yellow all over his body. He really didn't seem concerned at all. He never told me a test was available. He never gave me any kind of information or empowered me with anything. He thought maybe Cal had an ear infection and oh sent us home. Sent us home. Yeah. Um, sent us home with um, antibiotics to use them for 24 hours. And during those 24 hours, Cal just deteriorated and I kept calling the pediatrician saying he's changing before our eyes. And he said, let the antibiotics work, wait 24 hours. Um, he was just changing dramatically. So we took him to the, we drove to the pediatrician's office and walked in and said, we need help. And he sent us to the hospital finally. And they, and his words just for a Billy Rubin test. And, um, we were admitted, Cal was admitted and, um, a resident was taking his, the history and physical of Cal and unfortunately, made a documentation error and put that Cal's blood type was the same as mine, where Cal's blood had never been typed. The, um, the resident misread the birthing chart and said that Cal had the same blood as mom. So they ruled out with a, uh, blood incompatibility, and that's exactly what was going on with Cal. Um, so they didn't treat him aggressively, and they gave him phototherapy, which is standard phototherapy or standard treatment for jaundice. And um, on the next day in the hospital, Cal started arching backwards. It's a position that you and I can't do. It's called opisthotonous and or opisthotonic posturing. You start arching back backwards and started to cry with this high-pitched scream. It almost sounded like a cat. And so we were really alarmed and called, you know, called for help and nobody really seemed concerned. We requested a, a neuro consult. They did an MRI. We told us insignificant. Um, long story short, we we watched Cal suffer brain damage in a, a large regional hospital. Um, we were never told that his MRI was abnormal. We learned later on he was diagnosed by a team of specialists in a at a university much later in life um, when he was like 16 months old. So um, it was uh, you know lots of Swiss cheese holes as they talk about, or lots of the cracks in our system where Cal just kept falling through them. And I was not an informed. Um, uh, you know, parent that was equipped with the information that I needed to protect him. Um, we had gone to birthing classes. I read five prenatal books, of course. Um, none of them said anything about dangers of jaundice. So I was shocked. Plus, you're you're being told you're being told to be passive. You're being told you're a first time mom. Right. You're anxious. You know, absolutely. It's like, 
Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt really, when I later learned that jaundice did cause brain damage and that it was in none of the prenatal books, I felt betrayed by our healthcare system, knowing that healthcare professionals were really in charge of creating those prenatal books. And they withheld that. And I later learned it was because they didn't want moms to worry too much. Well, and for people listening, just to yeah. to anchor them, uh, the treatment's pretty straightforward. I mean, you want to just say, I mean, it, it's not that uh, th- there's not a, people don't right. know what to do about it. Right. Well, jaundice, newborn jaundice is the number one most common newborn issue. And most people listening to this probably, their baby probably was jaundice. 60% of all babies get jaundice at birth. It's um, it's very common. They just put them under what they call phototherapy, you know, blue lights, um, which is very, very common. And they really encourage, you know, breast, you know, active breastfeeding to help eliminate some of that from the baby. But it's a very, very common um, condition. And when it leads, when it turns into brain damage, it's called cernicterus. And it's a, it's a mouthful, but it's a condition that was eradicated in the United States in the 1970s. And so nobody even was thinking about cronicterus with Cal because there were no reported cases in the United States when, when Cal suffered his cronicterus. Because people were adequately responding to the, to the jaundice, right? I mean, the reason that it went away was because of the, right. the, ubiqui- right. the ubiquity yeah. of the treatment. And, and, and as you looked at that, that error, I mean, there are many ways that error could have been prevented, right? It, I mean, that must have been oh, the most excruciatingly totally. painful part of this. Totally. I mean, there was air after air, several layers. We fell through. Um, I was never informed of any dangers of jaundice. I would have been a much more proactive mom and demanded the test and demanded quicker treatment. Um, you know, the I learned that the early onset of jaundice is a, a, is a is a red flag in the in the guidelines, and the immediate action should have been taken with Cal when he was. You first, you know, soon after birth, and he got yellow at 16 hours. That's a that's an alert. That's a danger sign. It was so preventable because um, Cal now has really significant cerebral palsy. He lived. I mean, some babies die from it, and um, and and, he, and he's a remarkable person. I mean, he's a remarkable person. He is. Yeah, he is a remarkable. Matter of fact, I got a text from him last night. He did a comedy gig. Um, you know, he's very speech impaired. He has to use a walker to walk. It's really. He's hearing impaired, but he's, um, you know, he's embracing life, but he has challenges that. Yeah, that he's that challenges he that he didn't need to have, have, right? Yeah, he didn't need to have them. Yeah. Right, right. Pre- you know, it was preventable. Um, we grieved really hard, and I knew I couldn't change Cal, um, but I did want to, you know, I uh, hit rock bottom. I know what that's like, but I really had to, you know, visit my soul and say, Either I'm going to stay pissed off and grieve the rest of my life, or I'm going to come out fighting like hell. And I decided I needed to do something about this, that no other parents or baby should go through what we went through. So I started writing letters. No, first I had to learn, I wanted to talk to the system, but I didn't know who was the system. Yeah. You know, I had no idea, you know, who to tell. I wanted to tell somebody of authority. And so I did research and I, found an article in USA Today by Julie Appleby that described some of our healthcare system. And it described the relationship between CMS and the Joint Commission and how OI Office of Inspector General, you know, oversees uh, our healthcare system. So I called that reporter and she really educated me on how fractured there is nobody in charge of patient safety. 
And that was really alarming to me. You know, I came from a profession, banking, that was very disciplined. There was a lot of government oversight of what we did to make sure that invest, you know, people who deposited money, you know, the money was safe with us. I thought there was the same level of authority over our healthcare system. And I learned that that's just not the case. And so the reporter shared with me about the the power of the Joint Commission and, and other entities. And so I wrote letters to all of those entities, you know, that the the CMS, the Joint Commission, CDC, I wrote to the American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, and nobody responded. Hmm. And so, the, yeah, nobody. And and my, my call was to partner with them to help prevent this. And so then I sent all the letters registered mail. <laughs> and so I got all of them. <laughs> so, That's what I love about you. <laughs> I was on a mission. I was on a mission. So I got all those little green cards back that were signed. And I still heard back from nobody. So I reached out to the Office of Inspector General. I wrote them a letter telling them about our family journey, about Cal, about me sending in these letters, nobody responding. And so the Office of Inspector General called me. And they mm. said they were very worried that I wasn't hearing, getting responses from Health and Human Services and, and the agencies within HHS and the Joint Commission. So they actually, it was kind of funny. They kind of secretly told me, well, it was secretly, they told me to go online and check out HRQ, Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. And they were having their first patient safety summit um, in 2000, um, led by John Eisenberg. And so they suggested that I submit a request to give public comment, and so I did. What, what year? What year was Cal, what year was Cal born? Cal was born in ninety five. Ninety five. So you've been at it five almost right. five years at that point. Yep, yep, yep. And nobody responding. Of course, locally, you know, I, the doors were closed, and um, so at first I was caring for him. You know, Cal was not an easy baby, and yeah. we had you know all kinds of physical therapy and doctors visits, and in, during that time. I had, I had another baby. Um, so I was a busy woman, but there was this profound sense of duty, I would say. Um, By the way, did those local hospitals make a commitment to say this will never happen again here? The local hospital did. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, because I made them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I met with their chair, the chairman of the board and uh, it was very public here locally. Well, nationally it was. Yeah. So I sat down with the chairman and the and the, and they did and that and that's something that patients need to know that when there's harm in a hospital they need to sit down with the leadership and say I'm here as your partner we need to change something and I'm not going away until it changes and and they did and they did a very thorough protocol and they do newsletters on it and everything. Um, Let me ask you this: So you go through this and and I just can't even imagine the grieving process. I mean, and you've got Cal. I mean, you know, so you're. Yeah, you're you're working like heck, and I just know you're the most amazing mom. I mean, I just know that because I know that about no. you, and and so like no, you're you. you're putting your heart and soul in, into you know helping him, and 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 you're you're grieving. You're down, you know, because like just, and I'm sure you're feeling guilty for no reason. Like there's nothing you could have done, right? But, right. But I'm sure you're feeling guilty. Right. Oh, yeah. Just because people. Oh yeah. And you're hyper responsible person. Just would feel that even though it wasn't merited. Yep. How yep. do you find the strength not to be passive? Oh boy, um, I didn't. 
I had to. I mean, I didn't think there was a choice. Um, it was, you know, something I think we all need to do. And just the, you know, the, the depth of grief that we felt and how very preventable um, Cal's injury was. Um, I had to, it was, I think it's human nature. I had to tell somebody and I was ready to burst. I needed to find my outlet. I was really on an Island by myself for, for a while. And then when I had the chance to testify at the HRQ summit, all of those people that I wrote letters to that never responded were on the stage. And so Mm. in my testimony, (laughs) I pointed my finger at each of them and I said, and you didn't respond and you didn't respond and you didn't respond. And, and so during that testimony, Wow. Um, USA Today was in the in the room, and so um, within a few days, uh, Cal was on the front cover of USA Today with a two page story about Cal and my husband that we'll probably talk about. Yeah. But um, all these other mothers called me that day out of the article, and I thought Cal was the only child with chronicleros because it really is a condition of you know developing countries. And so all these other mothers called me, and they had it was the exact story, Harlan. They didn't know that John just could hurt their child. Nobody tested their baby. They were ignored. Now their their baby, you know, had chronicleros. So we moms within 10 days, I mean, it was such a great thing to finally meet somebody like that. So we all flew to um, Chicago where there was going to be a big symposium on chronicleros that was hosted by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, I was invited by the AAP to go because they're going to show a video of Cal to the to the members. Um, but I invited the other six moms. So the seven of us kind of stormed the AAP symposium on chronicleros and um, got to know the researchers and the clinicians. And we recruited, re- you know, some of the top researchers. We all agreed to form a nonprofit. Um, so we were, we were kind of on fire. Then we thought, now what? And um, so we thought, let's bring our, the whole healthcare system together. And, Actually, the researchers and clinicians are like, kind of like, yeah, right. And I'm like, no, I know exactly who needs to be at a, a meeting with us. It was all those people sitting on stage that never responded to my, my registered mail. So we called them. You know, I called the Joint Commission and I said to the CEO, you probably don't remember me, but I talked about you at the summit. And he said, oh, I remember you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he and did. I, oh. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, this is all about partnership. I said, we're going to have a, a workshop. Um, with some of the top researchers in the nation, moms, and this is about solutions. This isn't about about how bad the healthcare system. This is about working together to make it better. And so they said we're in. But then they said the Joint Commission said if we're in, then CMS needs to go. And I said great. You know, tell me who at CMS. In two months, we put together a workshop, and every one of them came. I think we had. 27 people in one room plus seven moms. And we had a two and a half day meeting and we gave them a to-do list. And we didn't know that you didn't give the joint commission a to-do, but we did. And, um, you know, at the end, we created just an extraordinary partnership and the joint commission issued two Sentinel event alerts that were authored by mothers. And the CDC declared Cronicters as an emerging public health issue and granted $750,000 to our researchers to do research. I want to go back to that. You said authored by the mothers. Yeah. Authored by the mothers. That's, that's just authored amazing. Authored by the mothers. Yeah. yeah that's amazing. Yeah. And, and for people listening, the Joint Commission is, is the group that basically certifies hospitals in the country and does audits and evaluates right. quality. Just so people understand the full context of, of your experience yeah. that has led you to that. 
But can we just take a few minutes to talk about Pat? Absolutely. So, you know, you're, you, you've gone through this thing with Cal, and then when does the story with Pat start up? So Cal's born in 95. Yeah. Cal was born in 95. My daughter Mackenzie was born in 97. And then um, in 99, um, Pat was uh, had a um, pain in his neck, and it, it wasn't me. Um, it was a, <laughs> a, a mass. <laughs> and um, it was learned he had a mass in his neck. It was very close to his spinal canal. So we went down to Arizona to a very well-known well, well, and, neurosurgeon. And just to start, like, how does he and even, you're still living in that town of 3,000? No, no, no. We're, we moved to Boise you because to of Bo- Cal's medical needs. Moved, yeah. So you guys are living in, in Boise. He's working here, doing all this stuff that you're you're talking about and raising the kids. Mm-hmm. And then what, how did yep. he even discover that there was something going on? He just had extraordinary pain in the right side of his neck. So then he got and some Im- he got some imaging studies as a result he, of that. He got some image. Yeah, he, there was an MR done here locally by a local orthopedic uh-huh. um, uh, doctor that we knew, and um, and so yeah, and he you know he was a great doctor here, and he said, listen, this was it was it would be it needed to, to be determined what it was. And they they thought it was something called a dumbbell shaped uh, benign kind of tumor that I understand middle aged men get. And my husband was very athletic and had had all kinds of injuries. And um, so so they referred us. So they you know got us a great uh, neurosurgeon down in, in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So within I, like five days, we were on our way to to Arizona after they found the MRI results. Okay, and then and then what happened? Well, we went down to Arizona and they took out his tumor and the neurosurgeon walked out to me um, while Pat was still actually in surgery. They had the, um, he drew a picture for me and he he said that they were spindle shaped um, cells, which is very common in this benign kind of tumor that they thought Pat had. And he shared with me that they got the frozen section pathology back as benign. And so that was wonderful news. Um, and so they basically had to take a part of Pat's skull off. So it was really extensive surgery. So we had to go through a little rehab. And, um, and so we basically, we were told to go home and live our lives. And, you know, but after Cal, you know, I said, wait a second, I want all the documents here. So I got the operative report. I got the frozen section pathology report uh, that the, the neurosurgeon gave to me. And it said atypical spindle cell neoplasm. But he said it's benign. So we came home with these documents and Pat went to our referring doctor doctor to get the stitches taken out with no follow-up. That's what we were told. And then six months later. And and just um, to say, like at that point, just because of your prior experience, I mean, you're already activated. You're saying, I want all the records. I want to be able to look at them myself and so forth. Right, right, right. And the neurosurgeon said to us, this is benign. Um, So we believed him. And... um, and we had no reason not to. Mm-hmm. Um, so and, and what we didn't know, though, was there was that the pathologist who we never saw, you know, the pathologist was in the basement, yeah. um, had ordered additional stains because to the pathologist, there was something suspicious that was never communicated in an appropriate way to the neurosurgeon. And so we're off. We're back home in Idaho and and Pat's, you know, we're living our life and um Meanwhile, a, a final pathology was done. It was issued 23 days after the date of surgery. And 
um, that never got to the neurosurgeon. We, we still don't know exactly what happened. Um, we're, we were under the impression that it was put in a fax machine and um, it was believed to have been received and um, the receiving end either filed it and the doctor never saw it or it never made it. Um, and, so so, and, and that means that never made it to you. <laughs> you never heard about it. Correct. Correct. And so Pat lived with this cancer for six years in him. And then he started to develop pain in his neck. And, um, and then, I mean, all of a sudden we could see a lump on his neck, like within days. And so we went back to our local doctor. We went back to, you know, to Arizona as quickly as possible. Um, they said there was a size, the, there's a mass the size of the surgeon's fist. So they immediately did, they immediately did surgery and, um, this, they shared that it was a sarcoma, uh, called a synovial cell sarcoma, which is a, a very rare kind of cancer. And um, I, I actually discovered the air. We were not told that a previous pathology had been done. And it was very confusing for me because they kept asking us why we didn't get treatment the first time, the tumor board. And um, so I went down to the basement and checked out Pat's files. And I found in the hot, in his hospital records, the the original pathology, you know, the one that the final pathology that showed he had cancer way back, you know, six months ago. Um, that was a, it was a pretty tough time when I, we discovered that. I, I can't even imagine you when you discovered that. I mean, you must have been right. Um, uh, numb. I mean, my knees buckled. I mean, physically, it was like a, like a, there had been a physical blow to me, and hard to believe that lightning struck twice with our family. Um, and so I think that, you know, you know, the rest of Pat's story is that we went through, you know, we moved to MD Anderson and went through several rounds of chemo and surgery. And Pat also became disabled. He became paralyzed from his, his um, neck down and um, he died in 2002 when he was 45. And so, you know, they, it was just too late because the tumors had metastasized throughout his spinal column and it had penetrated his spinal cord during the time of non-treatment. So they, you really can't do radiation on the spinal cord. So again, like, so how does this, you've, the, the arc meeting you went to was in 2000. Pat's in the middle of this at this, right. this point. Right. And yet you're, I mean, this is just the amazing thing about you. Like in the, in the midst of all this, which would just crush, cr crush me. I mean, you're just crushing, in, you know, what you've been through. Yeah. You're, you're finding this connection with other people. You're. And again, you're you're not just. It's not like you're just taking to the streets and protesting. You're actually learning about this issue of safety, and and then right. trying to trying to bring about system change. Trying to figure out how does it work? Right. How do we link together? How do we right. how do we be active in terms well, of this understanding? It's just amazing. Right, and well, thank you. Um, I had to. I mean, there was something something healing. I would say about being active about change. We can't wait for, for policymakers and researchers to invite us to their table. We need to invite them to ours. And I, I think that also finding people like you, even at the micro level, even at your individual level, can give you strength Absolutely. And, and know that you're part of a... Absolutely. Not alone. Not alone in the challenges. Absolutely. Yep. Well, Sue, thank you so much for sharing today. You know, I'm, I'm just so thrilled that uh, you were here with us, and I know that it'll be inspiring to those listening. So uh, uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Harlan. It's been a pleasure. 
Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Caraballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. <laughs>